Hi there, welcome to episode 26 of Paranormal Blip. And we have got a fantastic episode for you. Now the backbone of this episode is an incredible conversation with Stephen, who returns to talk about dreams, symbols, and Jung. And we talk a little bit about talking and a couple of other things as well. And Stephen's dreams are incredible. I try to analyze them. I'm a bit of a Junghead, you know. So I'm getting there with my analyzation of Stephen's dreams. So that's the main bit. Now, we're going to start with a really great story from Liberation Times for the news section and the archive. We're paying tribute to James Lovelock, a, a master scientist, absolutely pioneering environmentalist, extraordinary person, extraordinary life. Obviously, the most kind of well-known thing that he's well-known for is uh, Gaia theory. So that's in the archive. So welcome aboard. So before we go into the news, just to quickly ask you to uh, get on to Twitter, twitter.com uh, slash paranormal blip, and follow me there. Our Instagram post is, um, what is it? Paranormal underscore blip underscore podcast, I think. Yeah. Uh, but I've put a link of both of those in the episode description. So if you're interested in, you know, not just the episodes, but kind of contacting me or anything else, then please do follow there. Thank you. So the news today, we're going to be looking at this Liberation Times article by Christopher Sharp, and it essentially covers the Chris Sharp. Uh, uh, well, maybe it doesn't want to be known as Chris. <laughs> well, it clearly doesn't because he doesn't call himself Chris, you know. Um, I've got a brother called Chris, so, you know, I always go for the Chris when it comes to Christopher. Anyway, Christopher Sharp, he's really on the inside track, isn't he? And, um, you know, he's essentially giving us kind of insider updates on the situation with the Senate and the Department of Defense. And it's an excellent article. It's really, really good talking about the uh, kind of criticism in the latest um, bill that's been written up on the kind of slowness of the Department of Defense. And it looks like Arrow, remember we were talking about Arrow last week, or Arrow's gonna have to change their name. And it's an outstanding piece. And I really enjoy his work, Mr. Sharp's work. Not Chris, but Mr. Sharp to me, to you. Oh, that's uh, like um, the guys, isn't it? Yeah, Chuckle Brothers. So um, yeah, so definitely check it out. Now it's linked in the uh, in the episode description, and the article is all about the um, Senate Committee's explanatory report, um, which kind of talks about their push on. Uh, transparency around this area and really interestingly um, very robust immunity language so the idea is that whistleblowers who have got you know information that may be secret may be illegal um, feel confident to come forward to this senate committee which is kind of extraordinary I mean I'm not sure if that will happen but they're really keen on making it happen and you never know I mean they may have people lined up to come forward already you know you never know um so very very exciting stuff incredibly exciting and it's amazing that christopher sharp is um 
you know, kind of reporting, essentially kind of from the inside, if you like. He's got an excellent quote from Lou Elizondo, and he's got, you know, kind of quotes from sources. So it's a brilliant article. So thank you, Mr. Sharp, for your work in this area. And here's the blomps. So we're going to go now to the conversation that I had with uh, Stephen regarding Jung, symbolism and dreams. Enjoy. So Stephen, it's fantastic that you uh, can join us again on the Paranormal Blip. Uh, <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's good to uh, have you back here. You, you've really upgraded the set. It's actually really amazing now. I know it's amazing. It took a long time to get the marble from Italy. You know? <laughs> The columns. You, did you yeah, steal these absolutely. from Rome? Oh, mate, don't mention it. I'm trying to, <laughs> I thought I'd get away with it, but I did mention that they are from Italy, and they they look good here, though, don't they? They look great. They look great in your um, in your in small Dutch. house in South yeah, Dublin. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, listen, um, we're going to speak now about mm-hmm. Jung. Jung, oh. and a couple of things related to Jung, uh, mainly symbolism. So I, we, I'm a huge fan of Jung. I really, I think his writings and his works are absolutely fantastic. Very fascinating uh, guy. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, this is my uh, a kind of entry level. Um, I was going to say stab at Jung, but that's slightly kind of too violent, isn't I, it? I think I think he'd love to analyze that. And <laughs> <see> exactly. What... <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? Imagery. What's the symbol um, behind that? I don't know. Let, let me say um, that Jung is a, uh, you know, if I was to dilute Jung mm-hmm. in a water, I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm new to Keep Jung. Going. As well. Keep going, it's fine. It is very interesting. It's, it's quite difficult to talk about dreams. and But I, oh, can you remind me actually, please, Stephen, mm-hmm. to, to tell you uh, a dream that I had last night, okay? Okay. Can you get up and <laughs> okay? Tell, well, actually, tell... if we're going to do dreams, I have um, a trilogy of dreams I'd like to share on this podcast that might you might find find interesting. Really, a trilogy? Yes. Is um the end Compl- better as good as the end of Toy Story Three? I mean, it, it's okay. It's oh, definitely it's okay, definitely so interesting. It's... The fact that it's a trilogy, I think, speaks for itself. It's just it's very interesting. But if I put Stephen trilogy on my little yeah. pad here, okay, <laughs> so adapt it into a feature length. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's kind of um, thirty part three seasons of Netflix. Oh my god! Oh my god. So I'm going to begin, um, Stephen, if it's okay with you, by talking about this book that um, Jung wrote in 1964. Mm-hmm. It's called Man and His Symbols. Now, do you know how it was written, like, or, or kind of why it was written? Not, not particularly, no. I've never looked into that. Okay, so I'll tell you. Okay. This was at the end of his career, and he's into his 80s when he started writing that bit. So this, is, oh, this is one of his later books. This is his last book. Oh, wow. And he had a dream. And in the dream, he dreamt of loads and loads of people. Yes. And for years beforehand... Much like um, your mate, take Tolkien. What's his name? J.R.R. Tolkien. Do you know when Tolkien was, was it Oxford he was in? I believe so, yes. When he was in Oxford, all of his Don pals 
kept saying, come on, what's his first name? Was it Jody? Um, it's, it's John, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's John. John? I think so. Let's call him Jody. Jody. Let's not let's Jody. not disrespect a man I very there's much nothing, admire. There's nothing disrespectful about the name Jody. Some of my <laughs> favorite not, actors are called Jody. Not, what Jody Foster? Yeah, that's one of them. It, oh, who uh, are you thinking of? Jody Foster. <laughs> anyway, this this tangent is, is it Jody? Is it Jody Foster? Is it Jody Foster? Is she the? Is she, yeah, Jody Foster. I love Jody Foster. Was she was she in? Um, Silence of the Lambs. Yes, that, that's what I was thinking of. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. She's like one of the most famous actors on the planet. Is she? Um, Jodie Foster, yeah. yeah oh, okay. You're all just into that woman what? in um, Spider-Man. What's her name? I, I don't know who you're on. A, I, I, I don't know who that is. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, anyway. Um, so Jodie was at Oxford writing The Lord of the Rings and Jody R. R. Tolkien, I'm talking about. Oh my God. And, um, and all of his Don friends stop writing this nonsense about dwarves and elves, write something right. of academic importance. And mm -hmm. Jody said, Thank no. you, Robert. I'm like, you know, my bank balance is doing very, very well. Thank you very much. And well, yeah, my fame is like, you know what I mean? I'm going to like be, yes. I'm immortalized by this work. So I think I'm going to ignore you. Now, I can actually, I can actually bring back a, later. I'm going to, I'll cycle back to Tolkien because he had a very interesting perspective on okay. fairy tales, which I think is relevant to this. All discussion. right, fantastic, fantastic. Please do. I'll remind you, and you've okay. got to remind me of something as well, isn't it? I've yes, I remember. I remember. I remember what I'm supposed to remind you. My cream. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, so, um, so anyway, in the the opposite way was it happened to Jung, Carl yeah. Jung. He'd spent a career writing these books essentially for, you know, kind of academic purposes, you know, like his peers and stuff and his yes. you know, people that looked up to him and people in the field. And, yeah. and his friends and his bondmates were saying, you've got to write something for the, like the average guy on the street, yeah? Sure. Your work yes. is so important. It needs to be out there. It can't just be like cloistered in like, you know, kind of universities and small you know, it needs kind of to be. It needs to be like the average there. person can understand this. And exactly, exactly. Yeah. And for years he went, no, 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 no. You know, like it's. A, I'm an academic. I'm a you know doctor. Blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. And then, and then he had this dream, and the dream was thousands of faces and average-looking people. You know, yes. not glamorous dons. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and he then woke up and you realize, oh my god, I've got a book for, you know, the, the, the person, you know, exactly yes. the average Joe. So he wrote this book, Man and His Symbols. He was ed it, it, it comprises of five essays, I think, and he writes the first essay, and his four kind of closest peers, the four people that he trusted with the work that he, you know, his work essentially, yeah, um, or his kind of you know viewpoint. Um, wrote uh, the other the other four um, essays. So the the first one is I'm going to talk about the first one. Came out in 1964, by the way. Yeah. First, also by the way, for the listeners now and and for you as well. Um, although I think I probably sent you this. Uh, there is a version online which I'm a PDF online. Yes, it's very good. 
very nicely. Oh, you're probably referring to that as well, aren't you? I am. Yeah, I have it up. Yeah. So, so I'll um, put that in the link in the you know the episode description. Listener. Very good. I do encourage Let's... you to have at least a skim through of, of it. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading, isn't it? Yes, at least, absolutely. At least a skim through. Like there, are some, there are some. There are some. It's broken down into some very uh, interesting chapters. So if you at least just read one or two of the ones that appeal to you, I, yeah. I, I personally very much enjoy the symbolism of myths and legends and how they grow and shape our collective unconscious. It's a very fascinating yeah. chapter. Yeah, it's very it's a very long Absolutely. read. So Absolutely, get to it. So. That is a good point, actually. It is quite a big book, so it is good to look through the contents and choose whatever it is that you want to read. But I would say that's a ringing endorsement from both Stephen and I for oh, this yes. book. That you can <laughs> <laughs> for this um, world-changing book. So you oh, yes. will be pleased about that. Right now, um, so you've asked me now just to kind of read out this little bit from just trying to find out my phone here. So... So this is you were talk. We were talking before we started recording, weren't we, about the yes. kind of contextual, um, uh, the, like you have to kind of think of dreams in the context, okay? Yes. So to, to, of, just society, of society and the culture of who exactly, yeah, dreamt it. So in a nutshell, and please jump in if I butcher this because you're sure, sure. you're you're the young head here. Yeah. Um, the, essentially. Jung's uh, idea was that we um, dream, people dream, mm -hmm. and in their dreams they are uh, kind of uh, given information from the unconscious via symbols, okay? Mm -hmm. And we can give examples of, you know, ones that in his book, Man and His Symbols, uh, a bit later on, but uh, that's basically the idea. Is, is that right? Yes, in Put, put, put in very simple terms, yes, that is the, key, the core idea. That's the core idea, right. So um, now one thing that you said is that the society and the kind of lives of the people um, and the culture of the people... Shape how you to interpret be... these symbols. Exactly. So this is from the book. I think it's page 17. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, quoting the book here. Ready? Um, mm -hmm. Take the case of the Indian who, after a visit to England told his friends at home that the English worship animals because he had found eagles, lions, and oxen in old churches. He was not aware, nor are many Christians, that these animals are symbols of the evangelicists. Evangelists, yes. And are derived from the vision of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Can't help it. I can't read. <laughs> and this in turn has an analogy to the Egyptian sun god Horus and his four sons. There are moreover, moreover. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. Objects. We'll get there. Yeah. Such objects as the wheel and the cross that are known all over the world, yet uh, that have a symbolic significance under certain conditions. Precisely what they symbolize is still a matter for controversial speculation. So that idea that we took, you know, the kind of um, animals and, uh, you know, the, the lions, the eagles, the oxen that we see, you know, carved into our churches, like in the kind of wood carvings and the, 
you know, the gargoyle type thing. On, on flags or on crests or things like that. Yep, yep. So that all comes from Ezekiel, basically. Mm-hmm. And it isn't that we, um, you know. But it's important. It's, but it's important to note that animals such as lions and eagles have obviously strong significance for, say, nobility, strength, courage, things like that. And those those symbols aren't necessarily unique to British culture. Like the the Romans, their standard was an eagle, I think, wasn't it? On their yeah, uh, absolutely on their flag. So yeah. when I get some the, of these symbols, the Mary Beard book from the library, I can confirm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a an esoteric reference that no one apart from us two will get. No, I know, and um, yeah. the the list writer. Yeah, and the other, and the other, the third party. Yes, yes. What was I saying? Um, but symbols. Sorry, the Romans often... had an eagle. Yes, they did have an eagle. It's important to note that some of these symbols do transcend cultures, and that's part I specifically find quite interesting, and in how different cultures who don't have connections often have similar things representing similar ideas or morals or whatever you want to call it yeah and i think we'll get we'll get into that a little bit more later yeah so certain birds have characteristics in like the crow for instance is very a friend of mine in japan um has spoken to me about kind of how the crow has got certain characteristics that are Mm -hmm. keenly observed in japan Mm -hmm. and of course you know crow in um Native American culture is like a big animal, isn't it? So, yes. yeah, exactly that kind of thing. Now, does that just to kind of go from the book a little bit, because it's connected to what you've you've been saying, and that's how conversations go, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> does that have anything to do with the collective unconscious, Stephen? Uh, what the, the symbol of a crow? Well, the idea of a kind of connect, like a um, what, like a shared. Yes, uh, well, reading of a yeah. Well, there, there is a suggestion that Jung makes of, to put it simply, genetic memory, if you like. That yeah. I um, I, I don't know if Jung goes into this necessarily, but this is a theory that I've heard about genetic memory: the idea that humans can almost store. I, I don't know how scientific this is, but it's an interesting idea either way. That humans can store these collective fears or ideas and things like that, that have, and they become ingrained in us over like hundreds if not thousands of years yeah it's just like the idea that um you know a fear of snakes for example is an almost universal thing that makes sense because snakes can be very dangerous creatures if that makes sense it does and then make they can, and then, then they can become and then you know over time myth and legend they become a symbol of well, what what do snakes usually symbolize? They usually symbolize greed and, and like evil characters of, are often um, associated. Evil characters are often associated. Like with snakes, hypocrisy and um, being betrayed. Yeah, and also the Bible. Yeah, um, your book of Genesis. Although I, th- this is what makes it interesting. I don't think it's ever referred to as a snake. That's a depiction. Right. Okay. I'd have to double check that. It's been a long time since I've e- really studied the Bible in any way, but I'm I'm ninety percent sure. 
it's never referred to as a, as a snake. Okay. I'd have to double check that. I'd have to double check that. Now, but, it's, but it's become a popular depiction over time. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because snakes in our unconscious are considered an evil creature, or at least a creature to be feared or not trusted. Yeah. And also, I wonder, do you think it might have something to do with the... Um, well, of course, it is totally unknown, because, of course, the more you get to know snakes, mm. the more you your fear of snakes disappears. Because I'm not... Indy mm. never discovered this. Yes. Well, personally, I'm not actually afraid of snakes. I, How I long quite like them. to get to speaking about Indiana Jones? Not uh, half an hour. Oh, mate. We're slacking. We need I know. to pick... <laughs> Oh, this is the point. Side note, in your other podcast, when you talked about the chase scene in Indiana Jones, you got the placement of it completely wrong in the film. I know. I know, and I gave you endless, I gave you endless, endless grief. That. Yes. It hasn't stopped because it's endless. No, it is endless, indefinite. Yeah, what did I say? Did I say it was 20 minutes before the end? Yeah, something like that. But there's a huge section after it because he has to get, he because he goes to, um, to his mate, um, John Reese davis the claimed character actor. They yeah. get on the submarine, the submarine's <laughs> invaded, and he gets on the U-boat, then he goes to the submarine base. Uh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I thought it was just before he um, he threatened the Ark with a... No. ...with a um, off-the-shoulder missile with a rocket launcher. launcher. Yes. Which I don't... Did those things exist in the 40s? I guess they must have done. Oh, they must have done. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so I, I'm so sorry about that, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And you took it quite bad, that didn't you? Yes, I did. I, I, you're you're no longer the indie head I thought you were. No, I know, I know. <laughs> your but, status um, is your status has been revoked. That's right. The membership yeah. card has been shredded up. <laughs> now, <laughs> so going back to man and his symbols, there's this really lovely thing he 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 says quite early on. In, in the book, I think it's page 24, where there's a, there's a, a picture, there's lots of beautiful colored pictures in this, in this book. And one of them early is a, is a the Rorschach test, a Rorschach yeah. test, which he calls an ink block Blots. test. Yes. In, sorry, ink blot test yes. devised <laughs> by the Swiss psychiatrist Herman Rorschach. And it says here, the, the shape of the blot can serve as a stimulus for free... What do you see in that shape blot? What do you see in it? Um, it's difficult to say, really. It's a bit like a kind of... I don't know. It looks like um, um, it looks like a hip bone, doesn't it? It, it like looks a lot bit. like a hip bone. Yeah, absolutely it does. And then above, it could almost kind of like skull-like pink mm. blobs. But I don't really know. I mean, I can't, I don't know. And also but, then at the, back, at, the, at the bottom, it looks like Italy or something, like a map. Kind of I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't see it. I don't see it. The don't feet? See that. The mapish feet? Yeah. Like mm. a band on a map? No? A little bit. Maybe. So he says, um, in fact... Almost any irregular free shape can spark off the associative process. Yeah, Leonardo that's true. Vinci, it's true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Leonardo da Vinci wrote in his notebooks, quote, quote Leonardo, 
it should not be hard for you to stop sometimes and look into the stains of walls or ashes of a fire or clouds or mud or like places in which you may find really marvellous ideas, which is a lovely idea, isn't it? That, that thing. I mean, that's it's, to basically just slowing down and meditation and, and noticing things, isn't it? Yeah, really looking around. Yeah, yeah. And just and kind of quieting yourself to the point where, you know, you can... It's about introspection, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And bring to mind things that are kind that's, of... That's a very nice idea. Yeah, it's lovely. I like the idea that um, Leonardo is looking at his stained walls and huh. thinking up at the mate, like thinking up helicopters. <laughs> he did that, <laughs> didn't he? God, he, did that. he did. He did. He invented the helicopter like a billion years ago. So um, amazing. What a and and he also that, I mean, it is incredible when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. Wasn't it like a? It was like a whirly gig sort of thing, wasn't it? I think it was a. Um, like, what is it like? Kind of pulley-operated type affair, was it? Well, yeah, not a pulley, like but like, um, what are those things? Like those like wheels with little bits taken out that they connect cogs. Oh um, right, I'm sure cogs were involved. Possibly, I don't. Possibly. I don't. I, I, I don't know. I'll be honest. You're not a Da Vinci head. <laughs> Clearly. Did you like Donatello better? Uh, I was more of a Michelangelo fan myself. No way. Yeah. So then there's this other really nice quote that I'm just looking for. Did, did, he, paint, did he paint the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo? Is that it? And I was thinking about the Painted Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtles. I, 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 thought you, I thought you'd make that joke. I, yeah. was, <laughs> I was waiting for that to come. In this day and age. Which one, was the, which one was the purple one? The purple one? Yeah, the purple Ninja Turtles. They were all green, weren't they? No, we had a purple domino mask. Oh, a purple bandana? Yeah. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. Oh. Was one of them called Susan? <laughs> I think that was the rat that they lived with. Oh, yeah, yeah, that rat. Yeah, rats are yeah. another very strong... Master, Master Susan. ...symbolism. Um, symbolism oh, animal. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying rat. to find... I can't they find... They are the, a scourge. Uh, Rats, I quite, I'm, well, no, I'm not really fond of rats, but again, it's that thing, you know, the more you like rats, or sorry, the more you spend time with rats, the oh, less good. they become, you know. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I'm fine with never interacting with rats ever. So now, now. I've I, I had a rat infestation it. once in one of my houses. It was very unpleasant. Oh my God, that sounds well, like. Well, not an, it wasn't an infestation, like but it was, it, it was an invasion, not an infestation. And we, it was an swift, it was swiftly dealt with. What caused that? I don't know. Did you leave the cheese out? It, or? it was because it was because I, when I lived in Portsmouth, and Portsmouth is a horrible, horrible wasteland. Oh, okay, that, that's what and I assume it was. In Portsmouth, I love you for listening to the podcast. Uh, yes, and I mean, I, I don't, I don't hate you. I just think the city you live in is a horrible, horrible place and should be burnt to the ground. Right. Thanks for that clarification. <laughs> Sure, that will cheer them up. Sure, they're definitely still listening. It is made of. It is just a flat concrete jungle. There is a good chance that I do have listeners in Portsmouth. It's very good chance. I don't hate. Listen, I had a bad. No, no, now you, now you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no. So, so, but that idea then that um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was talking about. Yes. Um, 
uh, Jung then kind of develops a little bit where he talks about, so, so this idea of, of the unconscious, which I think in kind of like modern parlance, you know, like 50, 60, 70 years later, we would call consciousness, yeah? Yes. That, would you are, you, are you happy with that? Yes, I'm fine with that. Yeah. So, so the uh, some people, like when he, obviously he kind of, um, you know, came across this criticism in his career and it kind of feeds into these last book, this book, Man and the Symbols, whereby people would say, well, the unconscious is just basically memories, you know, and sure. dreams are just basically, you know, you're kind of sorting your, out. Your, your brain's sorting, way of processing information. Exactly, exactly. So as a kind of comeback from that, he says this, he says, and this is page 35, I think, although it took me a while to find it. He says, um, it is a fact that in addition to memories from a long distant conscious past, completely new thoughts and creative ideas can also present themselves from the unconscious. Thoughts and ideas that have never been conscious before. They grow up from the dark depths of the mind like a lotus, and form a most important part of the subliminal psyche. We find this in everyday life, where dilemmas are sometimes solved by the most surprising new propositions. Many artists, philosophers, and even scientists owe some of their best ideas to inspirations that appear suddenly from the unconscious. The ability to reach a rich vein of such material and to translate it effectively into philosophy, literature, music, or scientific discovery is one of the hallmarks of what is commonly called genius. We can find clear proof of this fact in the history of science itself. For example, the French mathematician Poincaré and the mm. chemist Kekulet owed important <laughs> scientific discoveries, as they themselves admit, to sudden pictorial revelations from the unconscious. The so-called mystical experience of the French philosopher Descartes involved a similar sudden revelation in which he saw in a flash the order of all sciences. The British author Robert Louis Stevenson had spent years looking for a story that would fit his strong sense of man's double being when the plot of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was suddenly revealed to him in a dream. So end quote. So also we can add to that. Da, 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 can't we? Yes, we can. Because uh, I don't know when was that written? Do you know that? I mean, it was after Dr. 64, obviously. Dr. But... Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No, no, no. Yesterday by the Beatles. That was my little song there. Oh. Because old. Um, I didn't. I Mac didn't. Um, Mac I didn't recognize it. Do you, do you want to know about the Beatles? <laughs> Tell me about the Beatles. Well, you know Paul McCartney. Uh, yeah, I know Paul McCartney. You know, he was killed and he was replaced by a MI6 asset. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> I'm sh Have I never brought that up to you? Wow. No, never. Um, well, that's good, though. But So he wrote um, yesterday, didn't he? And he famously, he came to yes. him in a dream. And I think there's probably other examples of dream... Visions wasn't oh, Tesla? Sure. Didn't Tesla have a kind of amazing dream? Do you know about Tesla? I need to yes. look into Tesla. Did he, he invented have... a lot of things. He did, didn't he? Yeah. He he tried to create 
Um, he he was very big on free power and things like that, wasn't he? Paul? Yeah, I need to really do a Tesla deep dive at some point, Stephen. It, does he count as par- does does he count as paranormal? Would he? Well, I think he was um, precognitive. I'm pretty sure really? about that. Yeah, I think there's a there was some I can't quite remember. But it was something like he um, knew when his mother had died, like uh, like without any kind of you know before being told. I can't, there's a story around that. I can't quite remember the details, but I well, think have, have, I, have I told you the stories around that in my family? Yes, you have. Do you want, a, do you want to tell? The is, it, is it appropriate? Is it appropriate for this podcast? Uh, for this particular episode? Well, uh, okay. uh, we can jump in. Indiana okay. Jones is far less appropriate. <laughs> well, but that, that, that's a motif. That's like a recurring thing that we have to bring up every time. Exactly, yeah. For the fans of the Uber form of the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my father is not a superstitious man by any stretch. But he, um, before his father died and before his grandmother died so my 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 grandpa my great grandma he claims that uh the night before both of them died they visited him in a dream and to say farewell and that they're passing on this happened both this happened twice and he would wake up the next morning and get a call from whoever probably my grandma his mum and to say well, that they, they passed away in the night. And that, that's interesting, isn't it? That's really yeah, quite crazy. That's and from a, lot, from, from a lot of people, from a lot of people, I would dismiss it. Because it's my father who isn't, who's very, who's very, you know, yeah. reason, reasonable person that really puts yeah. a lot of emphasis on what he can see and what he can hear. And you know, he's, you know, very intelligent man. Yeah. It just seems like such a wild thing for him to lie about, but I, I can't help but think it's true. Oh, no, it definitely he, is and, true, Stephen. And he said it so nonchalantly as well. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a thing he brought up. Oh, yeah, just randomly one day. Oh, yeah, before so-and-so died, yeah, I, I saw them in a dream. And they said wow. it was like a farewell. And he was, yeah. you know, he was in the location where he was sleeping. You know what I mean? So they, they sort of came into the room said their right. goodbye and then passed away and he woke up and it's it's, it's interesting isn't it I, those, yeah, those sorts really, of experience really those sorts of experiences are I, I, I can't even begin to understand but you know what though Stephen and you, yes. you know this because you've been in the room with me a couple of times because we work in the same place and yes, we without do. betraying any confidences we know that people because I ask people about it yes, yes and you we have. know that and it goes, and I've said this so many times, I say it every episode in this podcast, the more you ask people about it, the more, basically, you know, it's, it's happened to either you personally or somebody that you know and somebody that someone you trust. you're close to, yes. You know, someone you're close to, exactly. Like, it's happened so many times. And that's very, remember, and I think I've said this to you in the past, Stephen, that that mm. um, experience that your father had is very reminiscent of Jeffrey Mishlove, who won the big uh, Bigelow essay contest. Yes, I still need to read that. that essay. Yeah, it's a really good one, but it begins with a very, very, um, but essentially, you know, the same, the same experience. 
where Mishlove was visited by his, his uncle, like a very close uncle of his, who essentially, yeah, the same thing, you know. Mm -hmm. he, he came, was visited, and the uncle said goodbye. I, I think there is, I think there's a strong desire for that kind of dream logic in reality. I think people really take solace in that almost unexplainable phenomena of what your dreams are capable of and what you see yeah. in them and, and how you can use it to reflect on what's around you. I think there's, there's such a strong craving for that kind of almost uh, not spiritual knowledge, but this deep knowledge that um, sort of reassures you, yeah. guides you. And I think that's probably where things like spirituality come from. It's, it's that desire this this thing you can't control or thing you can't explain is almost coming to you and, and and what am I trying to say I've never really thought about this before this is just completely coming to uh -huh. me right now I honestly I've never thought about it this way before right it's, it's this oh, I feel free to jump in I'm trying to wrap my well, head I around it for some people I imagine it would be quite comforting yes it would it's almost and also get that closure yeah, and also a sense that the the unknown is um, not so unknown. No, it, it, it's it's there for you almost. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of accessible in in different ways. It makes and you. It's, I guess it doesn't make you feel as small or as insignificant. It's like all these powers that be or this unexplainable yeah. force is almost working in your favor. I suppose. Well, my fear of death, which I had a very, very strong fear of death, and I don't know if I've ever kind of laid it out to you in such no, stark terms. No, I don't terms. think so. Never. No. But because um, I have this ridiculous heart condition, which was kind of imperiled me many times in my life. Mm. And although you'd never know it, so look at me, it's like stumbling up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> totally, obviously ill man. But, um, you know, but, but like... It, when I was younger, there was a number of times where I thought oh, it's curtains, you know. Yeah. And then, and, and when I my father died, I think you do know this that I then kind of really deeply jumped into finding out about near death experiences as a way of like you know quite consciously coming to, term, coming to terms with it. Exactly. Yeah. And it worked in a massive way because I'm absolutely convinced. Episode two, by the way, if you're a new listener. <laughs> happens when you die i know the answers just as as I do. <laughs> um you know that the, 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 there's, there's so much testimony and so much you know in any other field you'd think well like there's something it's not just a bunch of people making it up do you know what i mean because sure. the consistent consistency you know hundreds of thousands of documented cases of people you know essentially going to this place beyond uh you know call it what you want and it's a, it seems to be that there's a kind of um, personal um, component to it in that it's built in some regards to, to you, for you to kind of accept it, if you like. And interestingly as well, not all experiences are uh, sweet and light. The kind of common of thing is like you know, everything is love and light, you know, and people come back and they're totally transformed and their whole lives are changed. But some people i think um leslie Keane 
in this really good Netflix show, which is called Beyond Death, I think it's called. She's got an episode about, about this. And I think in that show, they say 10%, and they think that it's maybe kind of more than that. But 10% of experiences kind of come back from near-death experiences and say, actually, it was basically like hell. You know, it was not I, nice. It was awful. That's very so, interesting. Yeah, and, th and they think they might be actually truthfully bigger a percentage because people know that you come back from, you know, glorious, you know, sunlit fields and everyone's there, your mum's yeah. there, whatever else, and, like, you know, everyone's having a way, what a wonderful time, you know what I mean? And then if you yeah. come back and you've just, like, been to hell, you're like, well, oh, no. people there, it's because they'll think I'm, you know, the worst of all the people, you know? Yeah. That's interesting, but certainly from my own personal point of view, my fear of death basically just disappeared over the course of a couple of weeks. You know, that's really interesting. And although I obviously there's reasons why I don't want to die, of course. Yes, but there's, of course. But there's plenty of, uh, you know, that that kind of sense of. Um, I mean, I'm kind of basically I'm sold on the idea. I haven't really looked into it that much because I'm quite con quite content, if you like, with your, with your current knowledge knowledge level of. Yeah, situation. exactly. And I could interrogate it, of course, and I could challenge it, but there's no real reason for me to do that because I'm quite happy, if you like, yeah. with where I've got to. Can and I talk to you about near-death experiences? I, I have something saved that I've always found quite fascinating that I want to talk to you about right now. While we're on the topic. In 1846, there was this Russian psychologist and he received a patient in his town and he was pronounced dead during a, a routine surgery. But he yeah. was revi revived about 30 minutes later. And he was completely, he was, he was gone in the head, really. And he, um, the patient claimed he'd gone to hell. And the demons were among us, sort of talking to him. And the, the man, unfortunately, committed suicide. But he revealed to the doctor his experience of hell. Wow. And, the, and, the, and he... he he described the, the the layers of hell, and he um, shall I explain them to you uh, as yeah. he as he saw it. So level one is sort of life, and he he said he moved through these layers and he got to level five before he was pulled back. He claimed that like level one was sort of life moving on to normal. Um, you sort of you don't feel that you're dead, and it's almost like a dreamlike state. It's sort of off. If that makes sense. Yeah. So. Very simple. Level two, everyone you sort of know and love becomes lost to you, and so sort of, and the demons of hell begin to, who have sort of been um, who in who are you know all around you in level one, but you don't know they're there. They begin to show their true forms and they sort of start tormenting you. And he described it as twenty to thirty years in length. Oh he God. felt he was in this state for several decades, and he was being wow. tormented by as the world he knows falls apart. Um, layer three, he described as emptiness and anxiety. The, uh, it was, those are the two words he repeated over and over to the doctor. He was being tortured and haunted in hell, and now everything is gone. There's no life, no, nothing to interact with. You're just lonely. Every second that you sort of, you, he felt they were after him, but they never came. Level four is where it becomes a bit more abstract. He says he couldn't quite understand what was going on. He was, it was a bit incomprehensible. 
and hell turns inward at this point. You sort of you sort of exist in this warped reality where there's no hope, no comfort, and you sort of exist out of space and time. That's that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And, and then he got to level five, which uh, actually, now that I'm reading about it, this is something that I can talk about in a dream I had. I, I can sort of feel the resonance here. In level five, he um, he only he, he he revealed that he was only in this level for a few minutes before he was revived. He described it as um, an abyss in black water with no light, and you know there is something colossal around you. Wow! And it, and it tormented him. But he was said he was only only in there for a few minutes, and he he didn't um, get get past this level. And then before he was revived. God, that's amazing. That is, that's quite harrowing, isn't it? It's very harrowing. Uh, Have you got any more information about like a net, like a link that I can put in the episode description? I'll I'll try and, I'll try and send you something. Thank you. I'll try and And, send you something. Okay, listener, you heard it here first. You'll try and send us something. Yes, I'll try. I'll try my best. But um, I've had dreams. I have a recurring dream, actually, about being in deep water with nothing around me. Right. It's quite scary. It's actually a very scary dream experience. Um, the one that I, mem- I remember the most, the dream started with me like, a meter above water. So the dream starts, I'm in the air and I fall into the water. You know, right. so I, 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 I sort of scramble, you know, swim around trying. I, I get my head to the surface. I look in all 360 degrees direction. There's nothing around me. Absolutely nothing. All I see is like the dark blue sky and the water. And I, I put my head under the surface and all around me, like hundreds of them below me, just sharks. Just Ooh, circling below, below me. And... And I sort of feel them getting closer and closer, and they sort of go for me, and I wake up. That that's oh a semi God. that's a semi recurring experience I have in my dreams. Right, that's an well, amazing dream, Steve. Well, it is amazing, but it's absolutely horrifying in the moment. And yeah, I, I wake up. It. I wake up in a cold sweat every time. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, what's the symbol of that, Jung? Well, can... Jung would say that you well, are. A... Um, what would start graving, like? start graving mad. You need to be institutionalized. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I think he would say that it's a, a fear of um, well, in what's what does the phrase in deep water mean? Well, in deep water, so you're out of your I was gonna say out of your depth, that's just redundant of a statement, isn't it? That's a slightly different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Do people say in deep water? Is that a not, phrase? Not, not really. I think it's out of your depth. That's what they say. Out of your depth. Okay. Okay. But uh, I think it's a fear of the, I mean, probably it's an abyss, isn't it? Going off yeah. that tangent. It's it's, yeah. it's it's a deep ocean. Like it's dark. I, I can't see more, sure. than, a, more yeah. than a few meters below. There's so nothing is, around is me. the unknown then? The unknown. Yeah, po- possibly the unknown. Yeah. And, um, and also the sea itself isn't unfamiliar element isn't it it's not a place where people where man yeah, is, is supreme it's like a, a weakness 
Yeah. So you're completely helpless in this void. And then you have, yeah. they were sharks, they were big ones, you know, they're a top predator. I don't, they're not an apex, they're not the apex predator, are they? But they are the top predators of the oceans. Yeah. Well, are there bigger predators than well, sharks? Killer, in killer, the ocean? Killer, whale, killer whales are the apex predator, aren't they? Oh, are they? I don't know. I think so. I don't, because to be an apex predator, nothing preys on you. Oh, okay. that, that's what it counts, and, and killer whales do it, do attack and eat sharks. Right. I believe. Of course, sharks. Yeah. But you're, and you're quite a competent swimmer, aren't you? So it's not to do with that. No, I am a very good swimmer. I, I enjoy swimming a lot, especially in the sea. But it's. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine it's a. Uh, you know, you feel overwhelmed. You don't. Yes, it's probably an unknown, probably an unknown thing. So we've got Poss this, possibly, um, possibly, you feel people are out to get you. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Certainly, this kind of fear of um, being attacked or injured, yeah. or harmed in some way. So this Sorry, is some um, dream that I have. Here we go. Listen yes. to this one. I'll yes. give you the trilogy of dreams in a minute. They're, they're quite <laughs> interesting. I think you'll get, you'll get okay. a kick out of it. Fantastic. Now, I'll give, first of all, I'll give you the young hat. Okay. You put your <sighs> young hat. Sorry. Yeah. The sound of the young hat going on your head. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. <laughs> My sore throat. I'm sorry. So, so this is a dream that I had yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it's a dream that I like very very frequently have very frequently. Not exactly the same dream, but very similar dream. So, so essentially what happened in the dream was that I was stranded and I couldn't get back home and I was, I'd missed the train and I couldn't get back to the town in South right. where I live. <laughs> um, and so there's, like, there's lot, and that was basically it, but there was a level of um, anxiety and concern to it that was very, um, uh, you know, what's the word? Unnerving. Um, yes, sure. Very unnerving. And, and it, so there's lots of reasons where, like in my everyday life, where you could think, well, this is why he's having a dream about a train. Like, mm-hmm. so yesterday was train strike, yeah? I've yes. started to go on um, to, to work via train, so I'm using trains quite a lot these days. Um, they're quite regularly, you know, on time or whatever. I'm not really having many problems with trains. But I've had, like, um, dreams about travelling and getting lost, even though I've yeah. never really got lost. The only time I fell asleep on a train was in the southwest. I fell asleep, uh, asleep on a train, and it um, terminated at Plymouth. Right. And I, I went out of Plymouth train station, walked around, saw the Shawshank Redemption was playing in the cinema <laughs> and watched the Shawshank Redemption. And then I just got a train home and I had a wonderful time. So oh that's the only time I've ever, oh no, there was one more, one time years and years and years ago when I was living in, um, with my parents in, uh, who, who were living in um, North London at the time. I fell asleep on a bus and I, wait, I woke up like miles away, like the end of the line on a London bus is like, it's not in London anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's like somewhere oh, right. in like North London. It took me hours and hours. I, I literally, I was walking for like five, no, it couldn't be five hours, but it was a long time, basically. Sure. It took me hours and hours to walk back home. It's quite easy to do. 
in terms of I wasn't lost in that way. But I but it still that was a much more that that wasn't like the Shawshank movie. I forgot about that one actually. So anyway, in, you know, in a nutshell, I've been quite happily, you know, wandering around my life, not <laughs> 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 being lost too much, you know. So I don't have this kind of. I've never been in an accident or whatever. Do you know what I mean? There's no sure. kind of bigger anxiety connected to travelling or. Tra- but nevertheless, there is this constant. I mean, it really like it happens like once a week, you know, it's like all the time, essentially. And then when I'm not dreaming about get, getting some kind of travel disruption, usually missing a train and feeling really kind of like out of sorts because of it, I'm dreaming of this city. And, and this city is a place that I've dreamt of. We're in the know, dream now. This is the dream, a dream okay. city, a city which is a kind of approximation of London. And I know I've yeah. lived in London for roughly 10 years, say, maybe a bit longer than that. So roughly about a quarter of my life I've lived in London, a bit longer than that, or a bit like, you know, 12 years or so. And um, just try to work out my age. Yeah, if it's 12 years, it's just under a quarter. Huh? You do the math. And, um, and, but it's not really London, you know. It has significant parts of London that I'm really kind of aware of that are part of, you know, in London. But then there's lots and lots and lots of different parts of the, that are in the kind of dream state London. And it's very much connected to my dad, who lived in London for years and was from London and was like, you know, he didn't only live in London, he lived in loads and loads of other places, but he's like then moved back to London at the end of his, like the last 15, 20 years of his life. And so you know, he's a very kind of London dude. He loves London. And sure. I associate London a lot with my dad. And my dad is a lot in these dreams, a lot. Like, they're basically dreams of my dad, essentially, with London around them. So that's really... And, and But the thing is, though, that it's so um, consistent, these dreams, that I could draw a map of lots and lots. Like, it's a massive, as, as London is, the dream sure. version is massive, you know, and I, there's different rooms, there's different part, parts of I, it, there's different... I find recurring locations in dreams a very interesting concept, and I've never had a satisfactory yeah. reason for why that happens. Because I have something that I can... Continue your dream, but I've got one I can... Right. Well, in a way, from. that's it. And I, I, in a way, I'd like to kind of map it, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, even now, because they're so regular, I've got a very clear shape of a kind of like a map, if you like, of this yes. version of London in my head, you know, which I could easily, you know, doodle it. I doodle it. I tell you <laughs> what, I do. If I can work out the technology, make it actually, survey map or something. It isn't a, a yeah. top down map. I could a, pa- a paper town, as they call the them. The survey people. Yeah, make a map of my dream world. Well, I thought that I could just jot out a version and put it on, but I'd have to put it online. Oh, no, I could put it on my Twitter account, couldn't I? Yeah. Yeah, you could. So there you go. Listen, I'll draw a map. Oh, God, you're getting good content here. Oh, my God. I'll draw draw a map and I'll put it on Paranormal Blip on on Twitter, at Paranormal Blip on Twitter. So what's your place that you dream of? Well, I always dream of my grandma's house. Yeah. It's a, it, at any time there's a familiar location I have in a dream, it's always, always, always my grandmother's house. Every time. 
it's the only recognizable location I ever have in any of my dreams. Wow. And I have no idea why. One that really stands out to me is um, it, I dream about I, you know, I'm, I'm a slightly old, I'm a slightly older like adult, like so I am an adult, but a slightly older adult, and I've have loads of money, and I and I go away to somewhere. I'm not in. It doesn't feel like England. It might be France, I think, or somewhere like that. And I buy this big manor in the countryside, oh. and I drive up to it, and um, the hat my grandmother's house is on. A, it's like a corner plot, like the the, the garden sort of stretches around the corner. And you sort of have to come down and around where you see it. I drive there and I drive the exact same way. I go around and I see it. And th thinking back on it, I think, oh, yeah, that, that, that's exactly how my grandmother's house looks. Anyway, it's this big, I mean, the house isn't this big manor, but in the dream, it feels like this big manor in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of nowhere. And I buy it, I own it, I spend a lot of time going around the village, meeting the people, all this nonsense, you know, introducing myself. And what I do is I start excavating underneath the house. Okay. And I build this elaborate, this huge underground network of caves and caverns. And I build a village underneath the house. And at the, at the heart... And at, at the heart of this village is a machine. Is a machine that I built to bring myself to bring people back from the dead. Oh my god! And I decide to test it out. So I call loads of family, loads of friends, lots of people I recognise from real life, friends and family that I have, and I test. It's like it's almost like it's a giant. Um, what is it? It's like a, it was a bit like a Faraday cage, I think. Yeah. It, that's what it looked like a little bit. It was covered in tubes and wires and it had like Tesla coils poking out of it and switches and little knobs and levers all looked like something out of a, just a, like a hammer horror film or something. And I, and it's tucked away in the heart of this cave system. And, um, and I, I go into the cage, I shut it, I activate the, the lever. Up. You can hear the whirring and the electricity cackling and things like that. And I, I pull out a revolver. This is going to get a bit dark. I do apologize. And I load one round into the chamber, and I shoot myself. Right. Yeah. And and so, you know, my vision goes to black. There's no sound, no nothing, and I feel the sensation. Of being pulled out of the dream, you know that you know what I you know what I mean. That you know that part where reality sort of start, starts to dissolve away, and uh -huh. you wake up. But it didn't. I was pulled back into the dream, and I opened my eyes, and I was alive in the Faraday cage. And then I took a bow, and then I stepped out of the cage, and I woke up, and I woke up properly. Wow, it's been interesting. I, I have no idea what to make of that. Absolutely no idea. That's an incredible dream, Stephen. Interesting. Yeah, what would you say about that one? I don't know. But I, I, the sensation I found weird was the, I felt like I was exiting the dream and then I was pulled back into it. Is that, the, that, yeah, I bet. I bet. 
is the so the purpose of the of the machine that you made mm. was to bring people back from, from the, the dead, dead. Yes, so I tested it upon myself. Yeah, so it worked. It did work. Oh, mate, that's brilliant. I, I feel like there's a story. I feel like there's a there's a story in there that I have to that I have to write. I feel like there's something there. Yeah, that is such an incredible dream. It's so filled with everything. I love it. It's it's so good. But um, I have. I want to talk about the, the, the trilogy of dreams that I had. Oh, I, I, we're, we're, we're at, we're at a be- there's no better point, I think, in the podcast. I feel like we've really got off the topic of symbolism, but it's, it's fine. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. This happens every time. So you I would a, love it. He would. I have a, tri- a trilogy of dreams revolving around a bear. Right. A big, a big, terrifying grizzly bear. Now, Dream one is um, I'm in a park, like a woodland park, in the middle of the woods. There's loads of people around. There's, you know, children gyring and gimbling in the wave. You know, there are on slides and playing with footballs or whatever. And it's, it's a lovely, it's a lovely, lovely day. The sun's shining, birds are chirping, all's well in the world. And I'm sort of observing it. Suddenly, without any kind of warning, this gigantic bear just comes out of nowhere and starts chasing people away. Right? And it yeah. focuses it focuses its eyes upon me. I start running away. The bear gets closer and closer. And th- I find this one quite comical. But um, the other two aren't, not so much. I, I turn around... And I pull out this remote control from my pocket, and I try and pause the dream. Wow! The bear ignores it and just just slashes me, and I die. Oh my god! And I wake up. That's that's dream one. Okay. That's dream one. Dream two happened, I think, a few months later. This is all over the course of maybe about a year, these three dreams. So they're not, they're not in like succession, like one after the other. They're, they're, there's a decent chunk of time between them. Yeah. The second dream is I am in this, it feels like a bit of a Twin Peaks type town, you know, that, you know, that, um, Pacific, you yeah. know, that nor- North American wilderness type town with, Put tall fir trees and things like that. And I'm trying to solve, I'm a detective, and I'm trying to solve this murder case, this serial killer that's on the loose in the town. A lot of this one I don't remember. There's a, there's a lot of um, sort of piddling about. And then until I get to this lumber yard, and I'm cornered by this serial killer who ties me up and leaves me for the bear. And he says he's going to leave me for the bear. The bear at this point hasn't actually appeared in the dream up to this point. It's quite a long one. I remember it being a long one, but this is one I don't remember many of the details of. And he ties me up and leaves me for the bear. The bear emerges. like after the, It's like the dead of night. It's like it's bitterly cold. And the bear just emerges from the darkness. And it kills the serial killer quite horribly, as I recall. And uh, the 
serial killer didn't do much of a didn't do a good job of tying me up. So I sort of managed to escape. Wow. And I get inside this like trailer or some some sort of office, like one of those small office buildings. I, I don't know. A and cabin. I and I yeah, put yeah, yeah, it was like a port cabin. That's a good that's good. And I get in there and I sort of radio for help. And I hear some cars come up and some sort of police come up with guns and what have you. And we sort of try and scout about the area, but there's no sign of the bear. And after searching with like torches and I think we had dogs or something, we were looking for it, we just couldn't find it. And eventually I think I, I believe I sat down in a chair and then woke up. That's dream two. Dream three is where it gets a bit weird. I'm walking along this riverbank, like this sort of steep riverbank. And on the other side of the bank, there's a, there's a forest. And I'm walking along sort of parallel to the stream. And I look directly across. So, you know, 90 degrees. So in my peripheral vision, I look over and I see the grizzly bear walking bolt upright, staring at me. Uh-huh. And the second I see it, it gets down on all fours and begins looking for a place to cross the stream. So I sort of run over this hill and I can hear the bear chasing me. Oh my gosh. I can, I can hear its feet pounding at the ground. And, and there are these sort of low, um, almost again, porter cabins, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I shout to them, the bear's coming, the bear's coming. And we, and they have, for some reason, a lot of guns in the, the series of dreams. They, they have like shotguns and what have you. They say, we're going to defend ourselves against the bear. And I grab a gun and I sort of get, and I'm, re- and I'm wet, ready and waiting. So I, I can't hear us anymore. And it, and I can, and it hits, I sort of hear it around me, like bursting through these cabins, just tearing things apart. It's quite horrific and I can't see it. And I start sort of running away again, further away from the noise. And I can hear it running after me again, pounding away at the ground. I turn around. It's a few meters away. It leaps into the air to attack me. And I just, I hold up my hand and I poof it out of existence. Whoa. I, I, I sort of come to the realization it's a dream. This is no word of a lie. I turn around to realize I'm in a dream and I just erase it from reality. Oh, it, just, it, just, it just disappears. And I sit down on the grass, look up at the sky and wake up. That's incredible, that dream. That, yeah, that one's wild. It's, it's That's still, really it's, wild. This, is, this happened a few years ago and it's just these three have stuck with me. Yeah, I so can long. see why. It's it's such an it's such an odd such an odd sequence of events. It's 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 amazing. This this is no word of a lie. Nothing I said was was a lie. It's yeah. all happened in my dream my dreamscape. Because the first one has got the element of the remote control. Yeah, where you, where you want to pause the dream. Yeah. So there's a kind of you know shaping like at least the desire to shape the dream if you like in the first one yeah and then the third one you do do that 
yeah, it's like I learn how to overcome. It's, I think that the theme is control, isn't it? That's, that's what the overarching theme of the, these three dreams oh, seems you're, to you're good, be. Um, this is why reputation proceeds. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an control. When I realize that I do have all the control, I can just get rid of it. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. What a, what it, it's an, I think it's actually going, you know, going all the way back to our original point about dreams being representative of your mind state and yeah. often sort of offering up solutions. Yeah. It, it, the, the moral of it is so clear. It's about almost not being afraid of control or letting go of control. It, it's, it's such, it's just, it's mind blowing that, that the, the unconscious mind can produce such a clear concept. Yeah, yeah. And just because a lot of dreams are nonsensical, aren't they? Yeah. But there's such a clear structure and format to it, of, of mine at least, that it's hard to ignore. I mean, sometimes my dreams that- come with sound. Sometimes my dreams come with soundtracks. Oh, really? And, and like camera angles. Right. Like, like, I, like, I can see myself through a camera lens, but it's still me looking at it. It's weird. Almost like I'm watching a film play out of my head. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's wild. <laughs> that reminds me. Do you know um, <clears throat> what are they called? Um, things that used to be on desks of people in the 1960s. A Rolodex. Are they called is, is Rolodex? It, isn't it called a Filofax? No, this that was the that, that was the 80s. A Rolodex is a is basically like lots of cards, like oh, a, um, oh, like business cards and it has all the numbers on it. Exactly, and you would kind of flip through to find the yes. ones. You know, have yes. you seen those? In... Yeah, so in when film, I was yes, there, yes. When I was in my when I was a child, like a teenager, I used to have this thing, and I have I haven't even thought about this for like thirty years. I used to have this ability to essentially select my dream. Really? I, yeah, so my dreams would be on a Rolodex. So I would Gosh. like stop it, a particular dream, and then dream that dream. My God. How crazy is that? I know. That's I don't, amazing. I can't do that anymore, though. Isn't that just, yeah. isn't that a step below lucid dreaming, basically? It probably is, yeah. My brother's into that, but I've never. I, I've liked, I'd like to try getting into it, but I really don't know where to start with it. I have sometimes realized that I'm dreaming whilst dreaming. Like within the dream, I realized that I dream. When you, but, but I always wake up when I that that's when my dreams fade away. I realize I'm dreaming. Right. Oh, I realize I come to a realization. Oh wait, this is a dream. I mean, and it, it, it has. Then, then, then it dissolves. Then it dissolves away. Yeah, it hasn't happened to me for like years and years. I can't really remember the last time it happened. Wow. But do you know with your um, third bear dream? Yes. Were you aware that you? were in a dream and then you yes that, that, it yeah at the end before i will it out of existence i realize i'm in a dream and yeah. i use my that this this never happens and i use the time i had left yeah. to because oh i i think the real thing in my head was oh wait this is my this is my dream this is my imagination yeah i can do yeah. what i can do what i want i can make whatever i want happen so i just wish it to not exist anymore and it disappears. Yeah. There's no no fanfare, no spectacle. It just snaps away. Is there a kind of hand gesture? Or yeah, I held up my hand. It was, it was leaping, remember, it was leaping up. It, 
it was leaping yeah. in the air bear in mind yeah. so i'm looking at it hold my hand up almost like stop you know palm out stop and it just disappears poofs that's amazing yeah now well while, while we're happened. talking about dreams in, in in a moment we'll just uh if it's okay with you Stephen, we'll move on to myths and legends which I yes of course about. just quickly while we're talking about dreams. So t- tell you what the audience are in for a treat this is a long one <laughs> <laughs> it is a long one, yeah but i tell you what though let's should we tell them about the gremlins We've had yes. gremlins, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, so I'm we have. Uh, very, you know, with my immaculate editor <laughs> skills. <laughs> so if there are some blips, some bloops, some bloops. <clears> yeah, that I haven't done a good job editing we, out. We've had, we, we've had goblins just chewing we, up all the wires. Goblins or gremlins? Or maybe I prefer both. goblins. I think goblins are funnier. Goblins, yeah. They're quite funny. Yeah. Um, the so, little green creatures. This is, I've, I've probably told you this, but I've definitely told the audience of the kind of um, uh, paranormal blip completists, because I know it's definitely on one of the episodes. I'm not sure which one. But the dream, have I told you the shared dream that I had with my mum? Enlighten, um, re- re- remunerate me. I don't, I don't quite. Yeah, I'll just, tell, I'll just tell you this quickly because it feels like, you know, rude not to mention it. It, it seems appro- it's appropriate. Very, very significant dream. Essentially, what happened was it was around about maybe, um, I can't quite remember, maybe 12 years old, something like that. And I was yeah. living in on a um, kind of terraced, in a terraced house yeah. in uh, the Midlands. Okay. No, yeah. I'm not going to get any more specific. The, sure. the Midlands of the United Kingdom, and um, and and so terraced houses. If you're if you don't live in England, basically they're uh, brick houses in a long line, and you can access at least for for my house, you could access the backyard through a little alleyway between yep. the two houses. So they're not semi-detached houses; they're all kind of like a big line of houses. You, you, have a house on, you have a house on both sides. And then there's exactly, yeah, and then the exactly. houses that your house backs onto, there'll be an alley separating them, the back gardens, basically. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you could access the, so my, my kitchen, you could get into the backyard through the kitchen and opposite the kitchen door into the backyard, opposite that there, there was a, there was a, a gate. Okay. Yeah. And so you could go down the, you could kind of leave the house by going through the gate and walking down the alleyway into the street, you know, the front of the, where the front of the house was. So, so there was an alleyway. So anyway, my mother and I um, had the same dream. So what happened was that we were both in the kitchen. This is the dream. We were both in the kitchen, and we saw, or sorry, I should speak for myself. I was in the kitchen with my yes. mum. I saw the, uh, like this kind of figure at the gate, couldn't really see any features or whatever, but it was definitely a kind of male vibe figure. And uh, kind of at the gate coming into the backyard and crossing and then uh, pushing the handle of the kitchen door down. And I could see the handle, um, you know, kind of go down, you know, the kind of inside handle in the kitchen go down. And then I woke up. I woke up, I looked at the time, I was quite spooked. By yeah, it. that sounds quite spooky. And then I, I went back to sleep. And then in the morning, uh, at the breakfast table, my mum, who was Scottish, said, oh, you never guess what happened last night, laddie. <laughs> I had a dream about you, Petey. <laughs> and she said... Did you call um, you Petey? 
<laughs> she um she basically did she say this between between spoonfuls of haggis <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah haggis and whiskey <laughs> the obvious um yeah, Scottish, yeah, yeah. Scottish though so I can say that so the um so she told me the dream exactly the same dream as me mm-hmm. and what happened was that she it wasn't just her saying this same dream that I had had. And I felt like, but I saw her, I thought, oh, should I mention the dream? Thought, oh, yeah. You know? But she mentioned it to me without me saying anything about it. And then she said, hey, I woke your dad up. Here he is. <laughs> my dad came in. And they, or he was probably in there. But he, my mum woke my dad up. Mm-hmm. And they clocked the time. It was four o'clock, right? Yes. So. So, and my dad said, yeah, she did have this dream. She woke me up and blah, blah, blah. So it's very interesting. I don't, I don't know how common shared dreams are. It's the only dream, only shared dream I've had. It's not something I've really heard many anecdotes of. Right, yeah. I've, I've the, pro- heard the, problem with shared, the problem with shared dreams is that it requires the two parties to acknowledge they've had the same dream. And, you know, That's it, right. It does so, that, yes. You, you know, you might have a shared dream with someone, but, they don't talk about it or you don't talk about it. So no, neither of you know. Yeah, absolutely. So it, yeah, it's, it's, hard absolutely. To, it's hard to gauge how common of a phenomenon it is. Now, it would be interesting for the listeners of Paranormal Blip, we can do a bit of a social experiment here. If you do have a strong dream about someone that you know, then ask them, like speak to them about the dream and directly ask them, did you dream that dream That's a good of idea. me, you know, from your point of view? Which is a good idea, that, isn't it? I'd love to hear the results back from this. All right. Well, t- tweet me on um, at Paranormal Blip on Twitter and tell wow. us the results. So that. now the um, but the interesting thing about my dad being there is that he was a kind of like third party he, observer, essentially. Do you know did, what I mean? Did, like, he, did he clock? Did he clock the time? Yeah, they both looked at the time. A part of Young's book, ancient um, a chapter that I really like is the ancient myths and modern man section, and what he talks about is the idea that he's you know every culture across the world has its own version has its own myths for different things and many of them are very very similar and he posits this idea that the collective unconscious reflects upon the same things and all the great works of art are often often have lots of similarities that you can see in the characters the archetypes the the, the the forces of evil, if you like, they all, a lot of them have very similar personalities and very similar motifs that go with them. So, uh, one that I like, one that I find quite interesting, is Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of him. I know Jesus. I, oh, you do know him. Yes. Okay. So, uh, Jesus is well. Uh, it, what the thing he's he, sort of the story that he's most known for is the is the crucifixion, isn't it, and his resurrection? Yeah. So, and um, so he's this obviously savior figure. The uh, and um, the ritual of him of his what am I trying to say? His death and rebirth is a myth that's across lots of different cultures. So it appears as Osiris in. Egyptian mythology, it appears as Orpheus to an extent, 
in Greek myth because Orpheus goes to the underworld and comes back. Uh huh. Yeah. But um, you you get lots of these similarities. So like Jesus had twelve close disciples, didn't he? Yeah. You know, um, he born of um virgin birth, wielded a um wielded a whip. Notice notice for wielding a whip. All sorts of things, and you can look across different cultures, and they have savior figures, messiah figures that have similar traits. So I believe Osiris was. I believe Osiris was born of a virgin. I think. Okay. Or, or not born of a virgin. He was born without a father or something like that. No, like born without a material father. Right. And he was. He died and was resurrected. Um. Uh, I don't think it was Orpheus, but maybe Hercules. He had, um, he's associated with the number twelve. He had twelve labors. He also had, I believe, he had twelve followers as well, or twelve close friends, or something. And that's like noted as as a uh-huh. thing he had. So there, yeah. are, you can see these. Obviously, Egyptian, Greek, and Christian—they're not far removed from each other, really, are they? Yeah. Not, not they're not super far removed because they're not geographically or historically. Because the Greeks revered the Egyptians, and then of course, you know, the Romans took a lot of the Greek myths, and then they became Christian later in the in the empire's life cycle. So, so it's not it's not far fetched to assume that they're inspired by each other, is it really? But uh, Christianity itself has a lot of <coughs> roots in Western paganism. Yeah. Because historically, uh, the the two were mixed, and a lot of uh, and a lot of the you, you'd have priests in a lot of the northern European countries who would mix together pagan myths into the Christian equation to appeal more to the people that they were preaching to, which is where, say, Christmas comes from. You know, it's a it's a Yuletide festival, and yeah. you have e- Easter, which is uh, associated with, if you look at it through a pagan lens, Easter is fertility. It's about, it's a fertility festival. Yeah. To do with eggs and things like that. It's, you know, it, it, it has this sort of rebirth element added in because the, the ritual of Easter isn't very, isn't very exciting, for lack of a better word. The symbolism is, is huge. But the actual ritual itself is quite is, is not as strong as a lot of other festivals in a lot of other religions, if you like. Yeah. And uh, what, where was I going to go with this? Because if you ask an Orthodox Christian what the important festival is, the most important ones, Pentecost would be the one that they talk about, probably. Okay. And do you know what Pentecost is. No, I don't know what Pentecost is. Pentecost is, um, I have to just double check because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, when um, it's basically when Jesus ascends. Okay. Basically, when the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven and speaks to the apostles. Basically, and it's um, it it happens after easter it's like a few weeks after easter and um and it's it's when the church is officially born if you like it's, it's when, they, when the apostles get their mission 
to spread the word of Jesus across okay. the world. Right. So that that that's a more that's a that's a holiday that you know we often forget about, but that's really actually one of the most important days of the Christian calendar. A lot of um, Orthodox Christians wouldn't don't even celebrate Christmas that much. It's not right. a very it's not a very emphasized festival, if you like, uh-huh. because obviously there's there's the uh, the trapping of it. it's a very commercial thing, isn't it? Christmas it's become this um, season of buying and feasting, yeah, which, which has its own symbols, doesn't it? It, it represents you know family and friends and getting together and spirit of giving sort of thing. So it's, it's taken on its own meaning, but the actual birth of Jesus aspect is often lost. I think a lot of, a lot, yeah, of, your, a lot of your more fundamental types might agree, which I do agree with, but then the symbol that's been, it's been replaced with, which is giving and giving and good fun and merriment with those close to you, I think is also quite a strong symbol that, you know, it's, it's definitely worth respecting. Um, going back to myths and legends, Jung, I'm going to try and find this because he, he had a great... Um, he talked about the, the cycle of myths and um, like mythological characters. I'm going to try and find it. Um, that Jung um, knew this person called Dr. Radin, I think, and he noted four cycles in the evolution of the hero myth. There's the trickster, the hare, the red horn, and the twin. And it represents in, the evolution. In the evolution of what? Sorry, Stephen. The evolution of the hero myth. Oh, the hero myth. Yeah. Yes. And they were called the trickster cycle, the hare cycle. Hare is in like rabbit, uh, the red horn cycle, and, and the twin cycle. And it represents the, it, and I'm quoting here, it represents our efforts to deal with the problem of growing up. Aided by the illusion of an eternal fiction, so it's about you know how you grow up and how you perceive the world around you. So yeah. the tricks, the tricks that corresponds to the earliest and least developed part of life. So um, the trickster is a figure who uh, has the mentality of an infant, if you like. He just just gratifies himself, whichever way whichever way he wants, can be quite cruel, can be quite unfeeling. Um, he, um, Jung cites the Br'er Rabbit as a good uh-huh. example of this. And he talks about Native American myths where they put a coyote in the same in the same, uh, the same bracket. And my mind immediately went to Wiley Coyote in that oh. sense. And um, I was thinking about this earlier and Wiley Coyote definitely fits this kind of archetype, doesn't he? Because he's this, yeah, definitely. He's this, you know, um, tri- tricksy figure who's trying to outwit a, a road runner, and he's using all these different traps. And he just all he wants to do is catch and eat this, this horrible, horrible demon, this this road runner, this purple feathered entity, and. I um I don't like Roadrun. He's a very he's an annoying he's an annoying character. Uh, they weren't my they they weren't I watched a lot of you Looney when I was younger and he was probably one of my least favourites of the bunch. Right. I just wanted that character to catch that damn bird. Who was your favourite? Oh I mean Bugs Bunny was good, man. 
Bugs Bunny. Yeah, I, I, lo- I, lo- I love Bugs Bunny because he never antag- he, he never starts as the antagonist. He always gives them what they deserve. That right. makes sense. That's, I think that was a rule they put down that Bugs Bunny is never allowed to start the fight. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if he did, then he would be a bully. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he, yeah, but he's yeah. always, you know, he's always got <laughs> Elmer Fudd with a shotgun, you know, poking it where it doesn't belong, and then Bugs yeah. Bunny humiliates him. You know what? And he says a lot about me. The Tasmanian yes. Devil. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. He was yeah. amazing. What an amazing character. Oh, what an amazing... I wish I could do a Tasmanian Devil impression right now, but I, I feel like I would uh, turn what away did... much of our audience. It was just like a kind of snarl, like a... Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> but it's a bit more sloppy than that. It's, it's a bit... There's more tongue action in there. Because <laughs> he, he always spits, doesn't he, as well? Does he? I don't yeah, remember the spitting. No, he like... like, like blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, it's, no, it's you're right. Like that. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a very good impression. <laughs> I'll, I'll add that to my list of impressions I can do. Tasmanian yeah. Devil. Tasmanian Devil and Nadine Doris. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, can I continue? Can I continue with my... Sorry, sorry, of course. Yeah. Sure, sure. So the next figure is the hair. Um, and he... Not quite a mature human. The way this theory came about was analyzing this Native American tribe called the Winnebago tribe. Right. And... I didn't uh, know Winnebago was named after a tribe. Yeah. Well, a lot of them are. Like, well, the, 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 the Toyota Cheyenne. The Cheyenne is a... Oh, yeah, the Cheyenne. There's a car called the Cheyenne. Yeah. Delaware tribe, um, Yapapai, uh, the Sioux. Wait, is that a car? I don't know if it is a car. <laughs> but I was thinking of shoe pastry, and I thought that sounds like Sioux. So I thought I. Anyway, sorry, sorry, I'll put you. I love, I love, I love, I love, I love shoe pastry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy some from the shops. I know. I want some profiteroles, please. Mm. Can I'll I order some profiteroles? Oh, thank I'll you. I'll get you some. I'll bring them in to, to work. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. We um, often have cakes, but that's like pushing the boat out, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Profiteroles, man. They're, they're also messy. Well, that doesn't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. Tasmanian devil, those profiteroles. We have, um, there's, a, there's a colleague that shall remain nameless that uh, finds great amusement whenever I eat cakes in our staff room. Yeah. And um, th- th- I think that goes to show that we eat far too much in our... We do eat too many, too, much. Too, ma- too many sugar treats. But also we... Don't... Eating cakes and chocolate. <laughs> but also we deserve... So. Yeah, we don't work at Cadbury's. No. We don't. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Actually, the, the one saving grace Portsmouth had was there was a Cadbury's shop and you could buy um, the, ba- the off-cut bags for a quid. Right. And you get this huge bag of, you know, misshapen Cadbury's chocolates that are not fit, that, that are not up to the Cadbury standards. And you get these big bags full of like a lucky dip of just... Not fit for human consumption. 
Well, they're definitely worth it for human consumption because I did, in fact, consume them many, many a time. Very good. I, I want to go to Portsmouth. They, they, they were they, no, they, they were perfectly fine to eat. It's just they weren't shaped properly or they weren't, the designs were botched or something like that. No, I know what you mean. You're like a little yeah. reject. Yeah. 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 The reject part, like um, wonky potatoes or whatever. Yes. Wonky and the, and the, if for any Portsmouth people that you know don't know where this is, it's in Gunworth Key. It's right next to the cut. It's right next to the Krispy Kreme stand. Wow. Really? <laughs> if you go off, if you, when you enter Gunworth, sort of where the university is, you go past. There's a there's a section of restaurants. You go past there. There's a cafe. It's like long cafe building. You go past there. And into the courtyard, the cinema is up forward, it's sort of up to, up to your left. You then turn, take your first right in that courtyard, go down there, and then there's sort of a, a small ramp. You sort of go down the ramp like this, like quite like uh, not not much one, and then it's on your left, it's sort of tucked away a little bit. It's a Cadbury's shop, right? Okay, so it's right there. So, so, so there the, you go. The listeners in Portsmouth, you're being dealt. <laughs> You 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 know felt like you were on the ropes earlier, but now you've been um, you know pay, you're being paid dividends, aren't you? Yes. And if you, you like buy... chocolate, if you like reject chocolate. Yes. When I was there a few years ago, very detailed. Uh, when I was there three four years ago, well, no, it yeah. was probably a bit less than that. It was maybe two two years ago, you could go there and buy a bag of offcuts for one pound. And they were delicious. God, that's good value, huh? It is. They were big bags. Should be now, though, with the cost of living crisis. And oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if chocolate. I don't think. I don't think chocolate has gone up in price yet. Chocolate went up in price massively a couple of years ago, was it? Yes, you know but this was a, a chocolate yeah, but, bar. But this, but this was after. But this is after that, I think. Right. Okay. Yeah. A chocolate bar in the shops is eighty nine p now. Is it eighty nine p? Isn't that insane? Uh, oh seriously, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just talking oh about. Oh my god! Like the, a, the world is ending. You know, spa or somewhere. The world is ending. This is bad. I know the world is ending. Get get the get the sun. Get the sun on the line. Where's the editor? That'll <laughs> <laughs> help. The Daily Daily Star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, so are you going to talk about the Winnebago? Okay, no. I wanted to go straight ahead to the twins. Listen. Okay. Which is which is the fourth part of the cycle, and this is where um, it's of, often called the sons of the sun, and they're essentially human and together and constitute a single person. Originally united in the mother's womb, they were forced apart at birth, yet they belong together, and it is necessary, though exceedingly difficult, to reunite them. In these two children, we see the two sides of man's nature. One of them, flesh, is acquiescent, mild. And without initiative. The other, Stump, is dynamic and rebellious. In some of the stories of the twin heroes, these attitudes are refined to the point where one figure represents the introvert, whose main strength lies in his powers of reflection, and the other is an extrovert, a man of action who can accomplish great deeds. So, and then he <laughs> goes on to talk, it's very good, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it goes on to talk about. Um, so they they often associated with the theme of sacrifice, death of the hero, um, death of hubris as well. So a pride that's overreached himself. And um, apparently in the in this tribe, the Winnebago tribe, this phenomenon was 
uh, represented in human sacrifice, and um, which is also a theme that has immense symbolic proportion importance in history, doesn't it? The idea of sacrifice is uh, almost the not the ultimate virtue, but this uh, you know, like the, the sacrifice in for for a good cause. Yeah, considered one of the most heroic actions one can commit. Absolutely, and it's it's like the you discard your pride, your ego, you discard your own life to the completely selfless act of saving something or fighting for an ideal. Yeah, you like so. Um, I mean, but in European mythology, it, it's it's sometimes it's a more of a punishment. The idea of Ritual, ritual, ritual sacrifice, human sacrifice. Sometimes it's like um, you know you're punished for your sins because hubris is considered one of the greatest fatal flaws, especially in Greek myth. I think hubris undoes so many of the heroes at many stages of their of their quests. I, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, Prometheus brought fire to humans because of his own arrogance. He thought he knew better than the gods. Things like that. Yeah, Hercules was punished for his own hubris. Orpheus looked back on um, what's her name? Um, what's, what, what was Orpheus's wife called? Um, Helen of Troy. No, 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 no. Um, oh, well, that's also a good one. That, Jodie that Foster. Woman. Oh my God! This is this is <laughs> going to kill me. I'm not helping, am I? No, it's no. Um, Oh, is it oh Sue? God. Sue from the no. Scottish? No, I'm I'm googling it. <laughs> Eurydice, Eurydice. That's it. I didn't need to Google it. it was Eurydice? That was that was the name of his wife. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So yeah, so there's this book that I want to just mention. I put uh, you know in, information about it in the episode description for the yeah. listeners. So um, it's called the Book of Symbols: Reflections and Archetypal Images. Costs yes. thirty pounds. It's available from Passion, and a description of the book uh, goes thus: This encyclopedia explores the hidden meanings of visual symbols across time and geography, from the sun to whales and the human hand, spanning different eras and cultures. Over eight hundred beautiful images, combined with expert illuminations of symbol, history, meanings, associations offering readers a precious and fascinating resource for thoughtful interpretations of life, art, and spirituality. And it's published by this organization, who, whose website I'll put in the episode description as well, called ARAS, A-R-A-S, the Archive for Research in Archetypal Symbolism. And they've got this massive database, yeah, this yeah. archive massive database. I'm not sure if you have to kind of join them, as it were, to explore the database, but um, or like how much of it is free. But there is definitely free content up there. And I'm Stephen, I'm kind of telling you as well as the audience. So yes. it's really interesting. I just found it like literally before we started recording. Ago. Yeah, I sent it over to you. But um, it's definitely worth exploring there. So I, if you're interested in symbolism, and if you're, you know, two hours into the podcast, you probably are, then, <laughs> then check it out. Right. Wonderful. Um, we're going to wrap up in a minute, but let's um, talk. So um, what 
Tolkien strove to do. Sorry, Tolkien. Tolkien. It's Tolkien, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. What's his it name? Jodie Jo D. Coke Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I continue. It's is John Ronald Reagan Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but uh, something what he set out to do with his with Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is create this British mythology using symbols and myths and concepts that you know they're found across Europe. It is it is a Europe. It's a lot of there's a lot of European and pan European influence. Yeah, it but seems he, Scandinavian to me. More it, than... Well, he he was take he took a lot of inspiration from the Edda, which is Finnish. Okay, Finnish the Finnish creating myth. Right. But uh, the, the the languages are from all over Europe. The you know, Norse languages, the Dwarven language, I believe, is Semitic. Is like based off. It's very similar to Hebrew, I believe. Okay, right. Okay, things like that. There's a lot of you know this broad European influence. But why he did it, and I will. There is a point here. He did it because a lot of British myth was lost and destroyed, specifically during the Reformation when Henry VIII went down destroying all the monasteries. Yeah. And lots of works were lost forever. So um, I hate hate that bastard for, for that reason. But what Tolkien tried to do was create something with a very British sensibility, a very... British outlook and it and it that would resonate with British people and I and that was what he set out to do and okay, it was it was tied it was, it was tied together with this theme of languages and linguistics because that was obviously his his thing that was what he studied that's what he taught at Oxford he spent his whole life making conlangs I believe is what they're called right and um and he 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 creates this other world using his imagine you know through the through pure imagination, that all all, it, all he tried to do was create this fairy story that has lots of archetypes in it—the idea of kings and wizards and yeah, yeah—and themes of bravery and courage that are reminiscent of his experiences during World War One. I. I mean, uh, he, he he claims he doesn't like the analogy of the analogy of it being relates to World War One, but I think it's very hard to separate the two ideas. Especially, right, do you yeah. do you remember do you remember the scene in the two towers where they go through the dead marshes and there are people like in the, you know, under the water preserved in the marsh? Uh, do you remember okay. that? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, is that not the is that not the trenches? <laughs> yeah. How could, right, not, yeah, how could yeah. that not be? You know. Okay, but yeah. I want to sort of I, I I think this is relevant, and I want to end with this quote that Tolkien gave. I think it's a very nice quote. The realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there, shoreless seas and stars uncounted, beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril, both joy and sorrow as sharp as swords. I think that's a very nice quote. Very nice quote. And I, and I believe it, it enunciates the power of the fairy tale and power of the myth. Yeah, how much and how much these things are continuously cycled throughout human history and through human culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
Yeah, and we could we won't now, but we could talk about Joseph Campbell and his. Um, oh, we could. Well, it's funny. Well, we could actually, and I I have an idea for another episode already brewing in my head. Brilliant. That you Brilliant. may. Or, I will, and I will. I, and when we end, I will pitch it to you. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's end there. So, listen, Stephen. Assuming, assuming your audience don't hate me. During, oh my god! <laughs> During the whilst we're not ended yet, let me just publicly put on the record my thanks for your, um, you know, participation and your expertise. Oh, I, and, don't, well, I wouldn't call it expertise. I've really loved it. Well, the audience can decide that, especially the audience <laughs> in Portsmouth. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> but, um, no, but ever, thank you ever so much for doing this, Stephen. You're I really welcome. do appreciate it. So the archive this week, we're celebrating the life of James Lovelock, who died on his 103rd birthday a few days ago. Um, incredibly, hugely influential. He's the person that discovered CFCs rising and was, you know, talking about climate change decades before anyone else. And he was a big, massive proponent of, you know, getting uh, act together, which was still like abysmally failing to do with regard to combating climate change. Um, slightly controversial in some regards. You know, he's like a big proponent of nuclear energy and he's got a bit of a kind of, you know, uh, big scale, large scale outlook in terms of uh, human survival. Um, having said that, you know, as an environmentalist and as a scientist, you know, clearly extraordinary uh, brain. And his Gaia theory changed everything in terms of, you know, the idea that the Earth is a self-organizing um, organism, self-functioning organism. And it has, you know, kind of led to a new branch of science, Earth system science. They never call it Gaia, but it is Gaia theory. And it's, a, you know, absolutely mainstream um, part of science now. So an, an incredible game changer in terms of science. He worked as an independent scientist for years and years and years. And he's a personal hero of mine. So we've got a bit of a clip of a beautiful summation of uh, kind of where he thinks we're at and what we think we need to do in relation to climate change. And um, yeah, so James Lovelock, thank you ever so much for all of your hard work. Anyway, here's um, Mr. Lovelock. We have to adapt. Ad adaptation is the thing humans have to do, and the thing they most have to remember is to try and preserve civilization. That's our most precious assets, and we're a huge benefit to the world that way. We tend to think of ourselves as some sort of plague or, or, or destructive agency. We are, but at the same time, we are something wonderful. After all those three and a half billion years of evolution, the Earth at last has something with intelligence and communication, which is part of it, because we're part of it, we're natural. We shouldn't think of ourselves as separate from the Earth. And through our eyes, the Earth has seen for the very first time from space what an incredibly beautiful planet she is. And that's worthwhile, well worth it. 
So thanks very much for listening. And it uh, just behooves me to say thank you ever so much. Um, Stephen's got a bit of a really good idea, actually, which I'm not going to tell you what it is. But you heard a little bit of a um, trailer or a kind of sneak peek in the conversation earlier, didn't we? So that's going to be part of an upcoming episode. Maybe not episode 27, but maybe so. You know, who knows? But certainly upcoming, Stephen will return. And uh, episode 27 hopefully will be in the next couple of weeks. So looking forward to that and um, see you later.